Case 5. Camp of the Dog, Part 2, of John Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winterout. John Silence by Algernon Blackwood. Case 5. Camp of the Dog, Part 2. Whether Mrs. Maloney's tent door opened south or east, I think she never discovered, for it is quite certain she always slept with the flap tightly fastened. I only know that my own little five-by-seven all-silk faced due east, because next morning the sun, pouring in as only the wilderness sun knows how to pour, woke me early, and a moment later, with a short run over soft moss and a flying dive from the granite ledge, I was swimming in the most sparkling water imaginable. It was barely four o'clock, and the sun came down a long vista of blue islands that led out to the open sea in Finland. Nearer by rose the wooded domes of our own property, still capped and wreathed with smoky trails of fast-melting mist, and looking as fresh as though it was the morning of Mrs. Maloney's sixth day, and they had just issued, clean and brilliant, from the hands of the great architect. In the open spaces the ground was drenched with dew, and from the sea a cool salt wind stole in among the trees and set the branches trembling in an atmosphere of shimmering silver. The tents shone white where the sun caught them in patches. Below lay the lagoon, still dreaming of the summer night. In the open the fish were jumping busily, sending musical ripples towards the shore, and in the air hung the magic of dawn, silent, incommunicable. I lit the fire, so that an hour later the clergyman should find good ashes to stir his porridge over, and then set forth upon an examination of the island. But hardly had I gone a dozen yards, when I saw a figure standing a little in front of me, where the sunlight fell in a pool among the trees. It was Joan. She had already been up an hour, she told me, and had bathed before the last stars had left the sky. I saw at once that the new spirit of this solitary region had entered into her, banishing the fears of the night, for her face was like the face of a happy denizen of the wilderness, and her eyes stainless and shining. Her feet were bare, and drops of dew she had shaken from the branches hung in her loose-flying hair. Obviously she had come into her own. "'I've been all over the island,' she announced laughingly, "'and there are two things wanting. You're a good judge, Joan. What are they? There's no animal life, and there's no water.' They go together, I said. Animals don't bother with a rock like this unless there's a spring on it. As she led me from place to place, happy and excited, leaping adroitly from rock to rock, I was glad to note that my first impressions were correct. She made no reference to our conversation of the night before. The new spirit had driven out the old. There was no room in her heart for fear or anxiety, and nature had everything her own way. The island we found was some three-quarters of a mile from point to point, built in a circle or wide horseshoe, with an opening of twenty feet at the mouth of the lagoon. Pine trees grew thickly all over, but here and there were patches of silver birch, scrub oak, and considerable colonies of wild raspberry and gooseberry bushes. The two ends of the horseshoe formed bare slabs of smooth granite running into the sea and forming dangerous reefs just below the surface but the rest of the island rose in a forty-foot ridge and sloped down steeply to the sea on either side, being nowhere more than a hundred yards wide. 
the outer shoreline was much indented with numberless coves and bays and sandy beaches, with here and there caves and precipitous little cliffs against which the sea broke in spray and thunder. But the inner shore, the shore of the lagoon, was low and regular, and so well protected by the wall of trees along the ridge that no storm could ever send more than a passing ripple along its sandy marges. Eternal shelter reigned there. On one of the other islands a few hundred yards away, for the rest of the party slept late this first morning, and we took to the canoe. We discovered a spring of fresh water untainted by the brackish flavor of the Baltic, and having thus solved the most important problem of the camp, we next proceeded to deal with the second, fish. And in half an hour we reeled in and turned homewards, for we had no means of storage, and to clean more fish than may be stored or eaten in a day is no wise occupation for experienced campers. As we landed towards six o'clock, we heard the clergyman singing as usual, and saw his wife and Sangree shaking out the blankets in the sun, and dressed in a fashion that finally dispelled all memories of streets and civilization. "'The little people lit the fire for me!' cried Maloney, looking natural and at home in his ancient flannel suit, and breaking off in the middle of his singing. So I've got the porridge going, and this time it's not burnt. We reported the discovery of water and held up the fish. Good, good again, he cried. We'll have the first decent breakfast we've had this year. Sangree'll clean em in no time, and the bosun's mate. We'll fry them to a turn, laughed the voice of Mrs. Maloney, appearing on the scene in a tight blue jersey and sandals, and catching up the frying pan. Her husband always called her the bosun's maid in camp, because it was her duty, among others, to pipe all hands to meals. As for you, Joan, went on the happy man, you look like the spirit of the island, with moss in your hair and wind in your eyes, and sun and stars mixed in your face. He looked at her with delighted admiration. Here, Sangree, take these twelve. There's a good fellow. They're the biggest, and we'll have them in butter in less time than you can say Baltic Island. I watched the Canadian as he slowly moved off to the cleaning pail. His eyes were drinking in the girl's beauty, and a wave of passionate, almost feverish joy passed over his face, expressive of the ecstasy of true worship more than anything else. Perhaps he was thinking that he still had three weeks to come with that vision always before his eyes. Perhaps he was thinking of his dreams in the night, I cannot say. But I noticed the curious mingling of yearning and happiness in his eyes, and the strength of the impression touched my curiosity. Something in his face held my gaze for a second, something to do with its intensity, that so timid, so gentle a personality should conceal so virile a passion almost seemed to require explanation. But the impression was momentary, for that first breakfast in camp permitted no divided attentions, and I swear that the porridge, the tea, the Swedish flatbread, and the fried fish flavored with points of frizzled bacon were better than any meal eaten elsewhere that day in the whole world. The first clear day in a new camp is always a furiously busy one, and we soon dropped into the routine upon which, in large measure, the real comfort of everyone depends. About the cooking fire, greatly improved with stones from the shore, we built a high stockade consisting of upright poles thickly twined with branches, the roof lined with moss and lichen, and weighted with rocks. And round the interior we made low wooden seats, 
so that we could lie round the fire even in rain and eat our meals in peace. Paths, too, outlined themselves from tent to tent, from the bathing places and the landing stage, and a fair division of the island was decided upon between the quarters of the men and the women. Wood was stacked, awkward trees and boulders removed, hammocks slung, and tents strengthened. In a word, camp was established, and duties were assigned and accepted as though we expected to live on this Baltic island for years to come, and the smallest detail of the community life was important. Moreover, as the camp came into being, this sense of a community developed, proving that we were a definite whole, and not merely separate human beings living for a while in tents upon a desert island. Each fell willingly into the routine. Sangree, as by natural selection, took upon himself the cleaning of the fish, and the cutting of the wood into lengths sufficient for a day's use, and he did it well. The pan of water was never without a fish, cleaned and scaled, ready to fry for whoever was hungry. The nightly fire never died down for lack of material to throw on without going farther afield to search. And Timothy, once reverend, caught the fish and chopped down the trees. He also assumed responsibility for the condition of the boat, and did it so thoroughly that nothing in the little cutter was ever found wanting. And when for any reason his presence was in demand, the first place to look for him was in the boat, and there too he was usually found tinkering away with sheets, sails, or rudder, and singing as he tinkered. Nor was the reading neglected, for most mornings there came a sound of droning voices from the white tent by the raspberry bushes, which signified that Sangree the tutor, and whatever other man chanced to be in the party at that time, were hard at it with history or the classics. And while Mrs. Maloney, also by natural selection, took charge of the larder and the kitchen, the mending and general supervision of the rough comforts, she also made herself peculiarly mistress of the megaphone, which summoned to meals and carried her voice easily from one end of the island to the other. And in her hours of leisure, she daubed the surrounding scenery onto a sketching block with all the honesty and devotion of her determined but unreceptive soul. Joan, meanwhile, Joan, elusive creature of the wilds, became I know not exactly what. She did plenty of work in the camp, yet seemed to have no very precise duties. She was everywhere and anywhere. Sometimes she slept in her tent, sometimes under the stars of the blanket. She knew every inch of the island, and kept turning up in places where she was least expected forever wandering about, reading her books in sheltered corners, making little fires on sunless days, to worship by to the gods, as she put it, and ever finding new pools to dive and bathe in, and swimming day and night in the warm and waveless lagoon like a fish in a huge tank. She went bare-legged and barefooted, with her hair down and her skirts caught up to the knees, and if ever a human being turned into a jolly savage within the compass of a single week, Joan Maloney was certainly that human being. She ran wild. So completely, too, was she possessed by the strong spirit of the place that the little human fear she had yielded to so strangely on our arrival seemed to have been utterly dispossessed. As I hoped and expected, she made no reference to our conversation of the first evening. Sangri bothered her with no special attentions, and after all they were very little together. His behavior was perfect in that respect, and I, for my part, hardly gave the matter another thought. Joan was ever a prey to vivid fancies of one kind or another, 
and this was one of them. Mercifully for the happiness of all concerned, it had melted away before the spirit of busy active life and deep content that reigned over the island. Everyone was intensely alive, and peace was upon all. Meanwhile, the effect of the camp life began to tell. Always a searching test of character, its results sooner or later are infallible, for it acts upon the soul as swiftly and surely as the hypobath upon the negative of a photograph. A readjustment of the personal forces takes place quickly. Some parts of the personality go to sleep, others wake up. But the first sweeping change that the primitive life brings about is that the artificial portions of the character shed themselves one after another like dead skins. Attitudes and poses that seem genuine in the city drop away. The mind, like the body, grows quickly hard, simple, uncomplex. And in a camp as primitive and as close to nature as ours was, these effects became speedily visible. Some folk, of course, who talk glibly about the simple life when it is safely out of reach, betray themselves in camp by forever peering about for the artificial excitements of civilization which they miss. Some get bored at once, some grow slovenly, some reveal the animal in most unexpected fashion, and some, the select few, find themselves in very short order and are happy. And in our little party we could flatter ourselves that we all belong to the last category, so far as the general effect was concerned. Only there were certain other changes as well, varying with each individual and all interesting to note. It was only after the first week or two that these changes became marked, although this is the proper place, I think, to speak of them. For having myself no other duty than to enjoy a well-earned holiday, I used to load my canoe with blankets and provisions and journey forth on exploration trips among the islands of several days together, and it was on my return from the first of these, when I rediscovered the party, so to speak, that these changes first presented themselves vividly to me and in one particular instance produced a rather curious impression. In a word, then, while everyone had grown wilder, naturally wilder, Sangree, it seemed to me, had grown much wilder, and what I can only call unnaturally wilder, he made me think of a savage. To begin with, he had changed immensely in mere physical appearance, and the full brown cheeks, the brighter eyes of absolute health, and the general air of vigor and robustness that had come to replace his customary lassitude and timidity, had worked such an improvement that I hardly knew him for the same man. His voice, too, was deeper, and his manner bespoke, for the first time, a greater measure of confidence in himself. He now had some claims to be called nice-looking, or at least to a certain air of virility that would not lessen his value in the eyes of the opposite sex. All this, of course, was natural enough, and most welcome but altogether apart from this physical change, which no doubt had also been going forward in the rest of us, there was a subtle note in his personality that came to me with a degree of surprise that almost amounted to shock. And two things, as he came down to welcome me and pull up the canoe, leaped up in my mind unbidden, as though connected in some way I could not at the moment divine. First, the curious judgment formed of him by Joan, and secondly, that fugitive expression I had caught in his face while Maloney was offering up his strange prayer for special protection from heaven. The delicacy of manner and feature, to call it by no milder term, which had always been a distinguishing characteristic of the man, 
had been replaced by something far more vigorous and decided that yet utterly eluded analysis. The change which impressed me so oddly was not easy to name. The others, singing Maloney, the bustling boatswain's mate, and Joan, that fascinating half-breed of Undine and Salamander, all showed the effects of a life so close to nature, but in their case the change was perfectly natural and what was to be expected. Whereas with Peter Sangree, the Canadian, it was something unusual and unexpected. It is impossible to explain how he managed gradually to convey to my mind the impression that something in him had turned savage, yet this more or less is the impression that he did convey. It was not that he seemed really less civilized, or that his character had undergone any definite alteration, but rather that something in him, hitherto dormant, had awakened to life. Some quality latent till now, so far at least as we were concerned, who after all knew him but slightly, had stirred into activity and risen to the surface of his being. And while for the moment this seemed as far as I could get, it was but natural that my mind should continue the intuitive process and acknowledge that John's silence, owing to his peculiar faculties, and the girl, owing to her singularly receptive temperament, might each in a different way have divined this latent quality in his soul and feared its manifestation later. On looking back to this painful adventure, too, it now seems equally natural that the same process carried to its logical conclusion should have wakened some deep instinct in me that, wholly without direction from my will, set itself sharply and persistently upon the watch from that very moment. Thenceforward, the personality of Sangree was never far from my thoughts, and I was forever analyzing and searching for the explanation that took so long in coming. I declare, Hubbard, you're tanned like an aboriginal, and you look like one too, laughed Maloney. And I could return the compliment, was my reply, as we all gathered round a brew of tea to exchange news and compare notes. And later at supper, it amused me to observe that the distinguished tutor, once clergyman, did not eat his food quite as nicely as he did at home. He devoured it. That Mrs. Maloney ate more, and to say the least, with less delay, than was her custom in the select atmosphere of her English dining-room, and that while Joan attacked her tin plateful with genuine avidity, Sangree the Canadian bit and gnawed at his, laughing and talking and complimenting the cook all the while, and making me think with secret amusement of a starved animal at its first meal. While from their remarks about myself, I judged that I had changed and grown wild as much as the rest of them. In this, and in a hundred other little ways, the change showed, ways difficult to define in detail, but all proving, not the coarsening effects of leading the primitive life, but, let us say, the more direct and unvarnished methods that became prevalent. For all day long we were in the bath of the elements, wind, water, sun, and just as the body became insensible to cold and shed unnecessary clothing, the mind grew straightforward and shed many of the disguises required by the conventions of civilization. And in each, according to temperament and character, there stirred the life instincts that were natural, untamed, and, in a sense, savage. End of Case 5 Camp of the Dog Part 2